Well, God does do amazing, miraculous things, doesn't He? But nothing is as grand as when God steps into a life and changes that person from the inside out. Amen. When He saves people. That's an amazing God who can open up somebody's chest cavity and change the deepest part of them. That's a God move, isn't it? Such was the case and what is what happened to a man named Africaner. He was the chief of the Hottentot tribe back in the 1800s in South Africa. Africaner was a dangerous man, one who was known to take your head off if you disagreed or argued. And so they were very feared, and he was wanted by the governor of Cape Town, in fact, Africaner. Around that same time, God was raising up a missionary, though, in Scotland. His name was Robert Moffat. In 1817, Robert Moffat set foot in South Africa and heard about Africaner. Instead of running, he said, I think God's written his name on the heart of Africaner. He walked into that village at a certain point in the early 1800s. And as a missionary sent by the Lord, he confronted Africaner with his sin and the gospel, which is the good news. And that day in 18, I don't know, somewhere around 20-something, Africaner became a follower of Jesus Christ. And consequently, the whole Hottentot tribe began to hear the message. And hundreds became believers. Because God changes people, doesn't he? The hardened, the worst the self-righteous God changes people. He saves us. That's just one of many. People like Martin Luther, a former Roman Catholic monk who was trusting in his works until he read the Scriptures. And he then turned to grace and faith alone. Amen? Or Billy Sunday, that hard-drinking professional baseball player who was walking the streets of Chicago and heard a street preacher bellowing out the gospel and was about to make fun of him until the Holy Spirit gripped his heart and his lips and said, don't you say a word, Billy. I'm going to blanket your heart with my grace. And that day, on the streets of Chicago, Billy Sunday bowed his head and became a Christian. And he became a hard-preaching evangelist instead of a hard-drinking baseball player. There's a street named after Billy Sunday in Ames, in fact. It's called Billy Sunday Drive. He was known to go through this area several times and preach the gospel. Or John Newton, that runaway and slave trader, who was finally caught up with, and God just saved him. He wrote the song Amazing Grace. There's Chuck Colson, who was the aide to Richard Nixon, spent time in prison for his uh, criminal acts involving Watergate, became a Christian while he was in prison, and is now one of our modern-day apologists, Chuck Colson, a fabulous man of God. There's Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, who were all atheists, and they set out to disprove God. Make us all look stupid. In the course of that, they became believers. I mean, God changes people, doesn't He? None, though, quite as dramatic, at least in some regards, as that of the Apostle Paul. And he describes his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Will you turn there? And yes, I'm well aware of what time it is, but don't worry. There's lunch afterwards. Just relax. Enjoy the Word. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is... The recounting by Paul of his own testimony. His own amazing grace story. And here he describes how he is the first church messenger 
experienced God's grace. Now, you may say, Todd, is he really the first church messenger? Well, perhaps not to the Jews. As we know, Pentecost came in Acts 2. Peter preached. Thousands were saved. But at that point, it was strictly that it was a Jewish church. And God was expanding the horizon, so to speak. He needed someone to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which, by the way, unless you're a Jew here, that's you and me. Hallelujah. And God handpicked, selected the Apostle Paul, known then as Saul. And in Ephesians 3, 8 and in Acts 9, he talks about how his role was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The truth be known, the Apostle Paul was the very first church messenger to the Gentiles. He brought the gospel to those that had never heard. He was the one responsible for taking them on the chin by the Jewish leaders, remember? They were like, Paul, you can't go to those people. They can't be saved. And Paul said, no, wait, they can be. And the gospel spread and the church grew. I'm thankful the Apostle Paul, as the first church messenger to the Gentiles, knew what it was, what it was like to be saved. He describes this in 1 Timothy 1.12. Read along with me in your Bibles. I'm going to teach through this text and make a few applications. He says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Some key words in there. Uh, he says the Lord gave him strength, considered him faithful. He was appointed. I mean, you begin to realize that this really wasn't about Paul, was it? It was all about Christ Jesus. In no uncertain terms on that Damascus road, Almighty God reached down and plucked Paul from the pit of sin and said, You know what, Paul? You're now going to serve me. And Paul describes that in these passages. He says in verse 12, he thanks Christ Jesus. And by the way, I think at least three or four times in this passage, he mentions Christ's name. Christ Jesus. There's no doubt about who Paul credits for the change in his life. Let's read further. Verse 13. He says, I was once a blasphemer, a, pro a persecutor, and a violent man. It's funny that he starts off with blasphemer, which is how we speak about things, ends up with a violent man, which is what we do to people. Paul was all of those and everything in between. In fact, the word persecutor is mentioned in every one of Paul's testimonial passages. Anytime Paul speaks of his former way of life, he uses the word persecutor. It's, it's amazing to think that the, the very one who was the church's number one obstacle and hindrance, he hated the body of Christ, became its most, most uh, uh, passionate advocate. He was the one God used to actually expand and broaden the church. He says, even though I was these three things, it was terrible. I was shown mercy. Say those four words with me. I was shown mercy. Aren't you glad that God showed mercy to you? I mean, the mercy of God, which is not getting what you really deserve. You see, grace means you get what you don't deserve. But mercy means you don't get what you do deserve. And you know what? To those who believe, we don't go to hell. Hallelujah. That's what I call awesome mercy, isn't it? Paul said, I was shown mercy. Look what he says next. Interesting phrase. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, you may hear that and think, well, I guess that means that Paul got a pass. Well, well not necessarily. When he speaks here of acting in ignorance and unbelief as a blasphemer, persecutor, or violent man, what he's saying is that prior to the Damascus Road, Paul had never understood or even heard or known the truth. He was just doing what came natural to sinners. But when he heard the truth for the first time, Paul said, yes, Lord. In other words, prior to that Damascus Road, he, he didn't know any better. 
He was lost and, and just far from God, like all of us. He had never been exposed to the truth in a way that he could say no to it. But when he was exposed to the truth in Acts, he said yes right off the bat. Now, someone asked me in first service, they said, Todd, does that mean that if we willfully reject that there is a stringent, perhaps more, uh, a harder punishment? You bet that's exactly what that means. In fact, to continually reject known truth is to classify yourself as an apostate. Read the book of Hebrews. And several times in the Old Testament law, God even says that there remains no more sacrifice for those who willfully reject. Now, I don't know where those lines are all the time. That's up to God and he handles that. But I will say this to you. There is a distinct implication here that continuing to say no, you run the risk of a judgment way beyond recuperation, shall we say. I want to encourage you to say yes to God's truth. The first time it's revealed. Amen. We'll say more about that in a minute. Just hang on to that nugget. He says he was shown mercy. He acted in ignorance and unbelief. In verse 14, he just kind of describes this again. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. And technically, if I were to read those literally, it would probably be a a non-grammatical sentence. It'd be like using lots of comparative words uh, over and over. Um, What he's really saying here is the grace of our Lord was poured out on me uh, super, even more abundantly. And Paul uses very intensive words here to say that God's grace just drowned me. Isn't that a good way to put it? I mean, that's what happens. We're lost and we're, we're not even we're near God. We're dead, but God's grace drowns us. And he says when that happened, the faith and love came, of course, with that that are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about himself here and the grace that was made available through Jesus. Now look at verse 15. He suddenly begins to kind of make this more than personal. He kind of takes it global. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And I like the way he puts that. That's a phrase used about five times in the pastoral epistles. And Paul is saying, just as I heard it and accepted it, here's a saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, just like I did, you should do the same thing. You should hear this trustworthy saying. You should accept it fully. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And by the way, the words into the world were Paul's way of saying he was physical, verifiable. He was historical. It was the incarnation that Paul put in here. Why? Because that's what you've got to confess. First John says that if you don't confess that Christ came in the flesh, you're not, a, you're not speaking the Spirit of God. And Gnosticism was rampant in this culture. Listen very carefully. Jesus Christ was a real physical being who was God in flesh. And he died in a, in a literal time and place. And his death uh, covers our sin. It washes us. It forgives us. That's the gospel. Then he says, of course, of whom I am the worst. Why did God do this? Verse 16. But for this very reason, I was shown mercy. There it is again. So that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example. The word there is pattern or prototype for those who believe on him and receive eternal life. You know why God did that in the Apostle Paul? Yes, to, to, because he had elected and selected him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Yes, all those things are true. But let me just give it to you from a global perspective. When God saved Paul, 
It was a message to everyone from that point on who believed that, listen, if God can save Paul, good night, he can save me. I mean, Paul was a church persecutor. He was the antithesis of what, of what the church was. And yet God reached down and saved him, changed him. And if God can save Paul, this verse shows me that God can save you. And his unlimited patience reaches out and calls you by name and asks you to believe. That's why in verse 17, I think Paul breaks out of this song under this shout of joy. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's almost as if Paul is recounting his testimony. He just can't help but break out into a song. You've felt like that before, haven't you? When you think back to your life as a sinful man or woman, then you realize all that God did for you, how his mercy just forgave you, how his grace saved you. And you just sometimes you can't express it. and You just kind of say, hallelujah. You can do that here, by the way, if you ever feel led to just break out on Jesus at the half. Amen. That's what Paul does. He's like, man, I just can't believe that God would even do this. And this is an incredible testimony. Now, this, this, this passage of Scripture is kind of revealed to us in three other places as well. I want you to write these down because they'll help you as you talk in your small group, as you uh, talk with your family, or even study your own personal devotions. I'd write these passages down. Acts 9, Galatians 1, and Philippians 3. They are parallel passages. They're companion texts that give us the very same thing here as 1 Timothy 2 gives us. The testimony of how the Apostle Paul was changed. How he went from Saul to Paul, from, from persecutor to proclaimer. And these are great scriptures. You know, they teach me something. This text and these other parallel passages show me something. That the church's first messenger was a changed man. I mean, in these verses, it's so clear that Paul is saying, I'm not what I used to be. Amen. I'm different. Listen very carefully, church. Listen very carefully. Paul didn't say he was just better. That's what religion does for you. Religion makes you better. Paul didn't need to be better. He was already the best he could be. Read Philippians 3. He was a a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was born in the right tribe. He was born in the right family. He had what it took to be better. He needed to be different. And there's only one thing that makes you different. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, religion has been making people better for years, but religion can't get folks to heaven. Because religion never changes you on the inside. Religion only changes your outside. It just kind of shines you up and polishes you a little bit. But the gospel changes you inside first. It goes to the core of who you are and turns you upside down. It totally transforms your life. And then that starts showing up on the outside. That's what we call change. Now listen very carefully. I need to explain to you something about change. If you read the New Testament and take all the passages about change in the New Testament, the change that accompanies salvation, you'll understand something clearly that the American church does not want to embrace, and that's this. God changes people when they believe. I didn't say God changes some people who believe. God changes all who believe in him. I hear this loud and clear and very succinctly. God changes all who believe in him. He starts on the inside. He changes their eternal destiny. He changes them from children of darkness to children of light. And he changes them externally too. Now what we're not given in scripture is the timetable of some of those external changes. Are you with me? 
Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, it seems like the fruit that is born from God's seed, in some folks, it may take 5, 10, 15 years. In others, it seems like it takes maybe 5, 10, 15 months. But I want to share something with you that I believe and can back up theologically. God's seed always bears fruit. Or there is no seed. In other words, you can't have God's seed and say, but you know what? I'm just still the same guy I was. You don't have the seed of God in your life. Read First John. He talks about the seed of God and how it leads to righteousness and not practicing evil. The earmark that you belong to God, the earmark, the benchmark that you have, you have known the gospel is changed. That's one of the primary hallmarks of believers. So my question to you is, knowing that God starts inside and changes us there first, and our eternal destiny, and then works its way outward, could you testify to the grace and gospel of the Lord through your changed life? The Apostle Paul did. And I think that's one of the benchmarks, the hallmarks, of true believers, is that they are changed people. This is one of the questions I had to answer as a 14-year-old kid. I've never shared this part of my testimony with you, but as a 14-year-old kid sitting in that service from a great family and had great Christian training, but I knew that deep inside nothing was really different in my life. Oh, I kind of signed off on the creed of faith. It was kind of our Baptist version of confirmation. You kind of just like, yeah, I agree with that. But deep inside, I knew nothing had changed. I knew I I was lost. I knew outside I didn't want anything to change. And that day when that pastor and that preacher spoke, man, I evaluated the deep inside part of my life. Like, you know what? I'm really no different than the next lost guy. And God's grace sovereignly got a hold of me and gripped me and blanketed me and just started drowning me. And I could do nothing but turn to the Lord in repentance. And that day God saved me. Much of the reason was because I was able to evaluate, you know what? Am I really a different person? Not just better, but different. It might be worth your time to evaluate and examine yourself, as the New Testament says. He says, examine to see if you're in the faith and ask yourself, am I just trying to be better as a person or am I really different where it matters most here? And is that displaying itself in what we call fruit, which fruit comes from seed? If there is no change ever, it may be that there's been no seed ever. And I can think of no better day than today. To let the Lord Jesus Christ plant the seed of his Father in your life and begin to bring forth fruit of righteousness in your life. Amen. That's what the Apostle Paul experienced. He was a changed person. Let's keep reading, shall we? These last few verses and then we'll wrap things up. He says, Timothy, my son, and it's almost as if he kind of wakes up from a momentary uh, praise dream, shall we say. He's like, oh yeah, back to to writing this. Kind of like, you know, he jumps back in and he he starts now talking to Timothy, almost as if my testimony, man, Timothy, that's what happened to me. But now it's, it's you, Timothy. You've got to make sure that this change we're talking about that happens, you've got to make sure this is still preached and proclaimed. Look what he says. Timothy, my son, I entrust this, or I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. In other words, Timothy's life was very different, no doubt. He had prophecies made early about his future. Timothy obviously relied on those for motivation. He stayed true to those. But his job in the end, though he was 
Though it looked different, was the same as Paul. They were both to fight the good fight of faith. And he says that while you're doing that, you need to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Those are interesting words there, aren't they? Faith and a good conscience, especially the words good conscience. I tend to think what Paul's saying here is this. When, when we hear, I think they're kind of related back to the words ignorance and unbelief. When, when we hear truth and we accept that truth, I think that's one of the best ways to make sure our conscience doesn't get seared or go from good to like bad and then to more bad and more badder. How's that for English? Are you with me? In other words, Paul says you keep a good conscience, I think, by hearing the truth, which is what he explains in his example, you hear the Lord and you say, yes, Lord. You just obey God. You answer the call of God. And he said, Timothy, you've got to do the same thing. You fight for the faith and keep that good conscience. And no matter what folks around you say or do, you stay true. When you hear the Lord, you say, I'll obey. It keeps your conscience in a very sensitive. The word good there is kalos. It means intrinsically good. It keeps your conscience in a place where it's not seared or, or hardened, but sensitive. He says, Timothy, I need you to keep doing this because not everyone has done this. Some have shipwrecked their faith. In other words, they've had this same body of beliefs. But instead of trusting the Lord and saying, this is the truth of God, yes, I believe it. They instead have perhaps tried to take that and turn it, misuse it and teach it falsely. And it says they have shipwrecked their faith. Two people he mentions here, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says that because of their actions in regards to the faith, he says he has turned them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. It's a pretty strong course of action, isn't it? It lets you know just how, how passionately Paul felt about his call to protect and defend the faith. And you didn't mess with the faith if you were near Paul. You, if you did, you made sure you messed with it the right way. Because Paul didn't have a lot of patience with folks who were perverting the gospel. He says here that because they had shipwrecked the faith, in other words... I don't think it refers here to a death situation. I think shipwreck means they had detoured. They had tried to follow a course and then they took their own course and they ended up on some island, beached and damaged. He says this can happen if we are not consistently following God's truth. Our lives become shipwrecked. They become off course. Often when we refuse to hear truth and instead we rebel against it, there are times that... that that those in authority over us, those in spiritual authority, can hand us over to Satan. He's speaking here of these two false teachers, which may very well have been in the church, by the way. And he says, I am excommunicating you. What he's doing is this. He's saying, guys, I'm taking away the covering and protection of the body of Christ from these two folks who have proven to be shipwrecked. They're proven to be false. They are messing with the gospel. And you know what? We're no longer going to afford them the privilege of the body of Christ. And by the way, don't underestimate the privilege of the body of Christ, of the church. You know, a lot of us think, well, what programs are in it for me and how does it benefit? I don't know that's what Paul has in mind. Paul has in mind the protection from life and the demonic forces that exist in this world. You know, the church is an awesome place where prayers of God's people, your brothers and sisters, man, they afford a certain kind of spiritual protection that's not known in the normal world. You remove that and you are much more likely to be attacked, to be... To be sought after. That's why in Ephesians 6, Paul encourages us many times to pray when it comes to spiritual warfare. Pray, pray. He says to these two guys, he says, listen, I'm going to remove this church of protection, this kind of um, umbrella that, we, that was over you. 
And you're gonna, I'm going to let Satan and just life in general, the world out there is going to teach you not to blaspheme. By the way, the word teach there in the, in the ancient world meant that it was the way to show someone how to act right through negative consequences. It meant physical training through negative consequences. And if you're a parent of anyone maybe older than a few months, you might know what this is like. Where sometimes you have to fight against the will to rescue and you have to let life Teach them lessons that probably the school of hard knocks is the best teacher. It hurts, doesn't it? I don't think Paul did this joyously. I don't think he was laughing. I think his heart hurt as he turned these men who were leading people astray over into the world and the devil and these people who would teach them what it really means to not have the protection and, and provision of a body of believers around them. It goes to show me something. Paul was not only a changed man, Paul was a charged man, wasn't he? He knew his job and he did it. And oh, for pastors and Christians who understood the task at hand, the gospel shouldn't be messed with or changed or shouldn't be altered to accommodate a culture. When the gospel enters in, it changes us. And then the charge is to keep that, to protect that. We are entrusted with that. That's one thing I love about First Family. I feel like we're uh, just a bunch of really awesome soldiers. And God's our captain. And we know the task at hand to, to fight for the faith. And we don't do that in a mean way. We're not crass or impolite. But there's no doubt a clear calling upon this body. And that's great clarity with the gospel. And to teach the word so that people will hear, understand, and say yes Lord, why do you think folks are getting saved in this church? You know why? Because many of them are somewhat religious, but for the first time they understand what the gospel is all about. I know that sounds crazy to many of you, but I hear from our newcomers on a regular basis, and they say this uh, consistently. Well, we just really never heard the gospel quite this clearly. And I say to that, amen. If we can keep doing that and teach folks how to grow and understand God's word, man, that's what churches do. That's one of the ways you know you got church, amen. When you get the right message, you get the right messengers, people who, are, who have been changed and they're charged, then you know you're in the right place. And Paul is a great example of someone who was changed and charged. Let's make this simple for us in an application way and we'll be done. What do today's best messengers look like? Well, you're ahead of me, aren't you? Today's best church messengers, much like the church's first messenger, are people who are changed and charged. People who take seriously the gospel and what it brings them to, and then they take seriously their task to understand it and explain it and and live a life that witnesses to it. You know, God wants to change you, and God wants to charge you. He wants to shower His grace upon you, so you're different from the inside out. And then he wants to uh, uh, move you forward with a task. Making disciples of all nations. Changed and charged. Can I make just a couple of comments about that as we leave this morning? I want to just give you, these won't be behind me, but they're just two thoughts that I have that I've been thinking about this week. To be changed and charged means we do two things. We respond to truth the moment we hear it. That's how change happens best. Now listen very carefully, church, and especially our teenagers and those who are below that age. One of the best patterns you can develop 
is the courage. Listen very clearly the words I've chosen. Is the courage that when you hear truth, you won't fight it, but you will accept it. And then verbally say, you know, I can see how I was wrong about that. And um, I appreciate you sharing that truth with me, and I'm going to make some adjustments. You'll be surprised if you can develop an attitude that when you hear the truth, you adjust to it. That will serve you so well all of your life. But I'll tell you something. And see, I think that's how you keep a good conscience. You start even at 5 and 7 and 10 and 15 and 17 when someone brings truth to you. It could be just even a small matter. They bring truth to you and you say, I don't believe that. I'll look at it. If every time truth is presented, you fight it, you're going to get your way no matter what. You're going to rebel. The problem with that is at the end of that course, it's a hardened conscience. It's a seared conscience. And no one can speak to you, not even God. And you're a, you never hear the Lord and you wonder why your friends are few. You can't keep a job and your marriage is on the rocks. Because all you ever say when confronted with the truth is, I don't believe that. That's not how I see it. I think this. Pride will leave you lonely and broken. And one of the best things you can do, listen to me kids, is as your parents give instruction to you, I know it's difficult. It takes a lot of courage to look your mom or dad in the eye and say, you know what? I see what you mean, and I'm gonna, I appreciate that. I'm going to work on that. I, it takes a lot of courage because some of you think, well, they don't know what it's like, and, and I'm not sure all that's going in your home. But when you can, and James says this, when you can accept with meekness the engrafted word, that's in the book of James, it says that's able to save your souls. One of the best habits to learn in order to see God's change come in you is just to, when you hear truth, the first time you hear it, say, yes, Lord. What if today is the first time you've heard the gospel? Are well, you going to say, well, I don't think that's how you get to heaven. I don't think that's... Instead, say, wow, the Bible lays it out so clearly. There's one way to heaven. It's Jesus Christ. I believe. Lord, save me. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's what God's after. Is a tender, sensitive heart that when truth comes your way, you will say yes. I'd say one more thought to you. Not just respond to truth the moment you hear it, but then represent Christ well. Represent his truth as you live it. Follow them. Pass them on to others. Take seriously your job to stay on course. And avoid the shipwreck syndrome. That's our job. As we enter into our fourth year of ministry, as we look ahead to year five and beyond, I can think of no greater message to our church than this. Let's let God change us. And let's let God charge us. And as he increases the fold at First Family, as his name gets greater fame, we'll just continue to say it's all God. His grace is sovereign and he's incredible and he saves and it's all God. Let's keep lifting our hands and our hearts to him alone as a changed and charged people. That's what Paul was as the first messenger. I pray that as the messengers now, we will be exactly that as well.